Uh, if you're a guest with us, it's a pleasure to have you this morning. We walk through the Bible together, specifically through books of the Bible, and we have been walking through the book of Romans, and today we are starting chapter 9. As I mentioned in my prayer, this is going to be um, a topic. Paul is turning the page a bit, and he is going to be focusing on a new topic for the next three chapters. So that's going to take us probably six weeks to get through. I am going to be very honest. You're not going to like hearing his message today. This is um, a very difficult, challenging message to receive. I feel more comfortable talking about LGBTQT stuff than this. I'm, I, I feel more comfortable preaching against homosexuality and that hot button topic than this. So I'm going to ask for your grace as I do my best to expose God's truths and to um, articulate not just the, the truth we see here, but to reinforce it with everything else that Scripture communicates along these lines. Uh, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we go through this text that we would all remain humble and unified in the pursuit of God's truths. In verses 1 through 5, Paul sets the foundation for this long argument. In verses 1 through 5, Paul opens up the purpose for this argument. And it's basically this question. All right, I'm going to summarize it, then we'll dive into it. What about the Jews? What about all those Jews out there who are not believing? What about all the... This is Paul's day, but it's still our day. What about all the Jews who have not trusted Jesus as Messiah? What about them? What, what's going on with them? What's going to happen to them? And so Paul is going to talk about that for three chapters. And as he talks about them, he's also going to give us principalized truths about how he works, not just with the Jewish people, but all of us. And so here's what he asks about the Jews, starting with verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. So Paul immediately is kind of like hedging all his bets. Like, guys, guys, you know, this is a tough subject, but I am speaking the truth. I'm not lying. Like the fact that Paul has to make those arguments, those comments, should tell us that this is going to be a difficult conversation, even for him. Everyone following along? Okay. What's the point? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That is how Paul feels about the current context of the Jewish people who are not believing that Jesus Christ is Messiah. All right, so let's just pause. I'm going to just pause a lot, right? War in Israel, should we care? Yeah. Because Israel is God's people, but we're God's people. But are they? It's like we got questions about Israel right now, yeah? Paul's going to answer a lot of those, especially by the end of this series. What's his wish? He continues in verse 3, I could wish 
that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul wishes that he could like switch places with them. They're lost. They're rebellious. They have not confessed Jesus Christ as Savior. They're, they're standing in judgment. And Paul loves them so much, he wishes he could just switch spots with them and become the curse and they can get the blessing that he now has. Everyone tracking with the argument? It's like some of us and our children, right? Isn't this how we think sometimes? Like, I wish we could just, I, I love them so much that we could swap roles and I just take it for them. Ever, anyone ever been there? Okay. Now, what about the Jews? Here we go. Verse four, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The answers, the ancestors are theirs and from them by physical descent came the Christ who is God over all praise forever. Amen. So eight different things there that Paul lists about the privileges that the Israelites have historically enjoyed. Israel as a nation, Israel as a people, have tremendous privilege. Okay? And Paul's going to say, although all that's true, they have incredible privilege, what has he been arguing up through chapters 1 through 8? Privilege doesn't get you into the kingdom. Listen, DNA, blood, ethnicity doesn't get you into the kingdom. What gets you into the kingdom, church? Christ. The only thing that gets you into heaven is Jesus Christ. And so although the Israelites enjoy all these privileges, it's not enough. There's something missing. They have rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And remember, Jesus said, I am the what? Way, truth, life. How many people come to the Father? No one come to the Father except through Him. So to reject Jesus as Messiah means you ain't getting into heaven. And that's the state of much of Israel in Paul's day. And that's the state of much of Israel in our day. Now, in this, verse 5, real quick, came the Christ who is what? Who is who? Jesus is God. Amen? So that could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but I want to make sure we didn't just gloss over that. What makes Jesus more, I mean, what? Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus is also God. And so it's, it's an issue of the Jews have not, and, and all non-believers, they haven't seen Jesus as Messiah, but more importantly, they haven't seen him as God. There's a lot of people out there who like Jesus, right? Everyone loves, no one has a problem with Jesus, correct? Until you start answering the question, what kind of Jesus? When we get into his divinity, people suddenly don't believe in him or you know, follow him. All right, so this is the foundation. What's going on with the Jews? They're privileged people. What about them now? Verse 6, this is where we're going to get into the weeds. 
In verse 6, Paul continues, Now, right now, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. So, we're going to have some truths for this passage today that we're going to focus on. But you might want to just underline this phrase in your Bible. Now, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. This I would consider to be the central truth for the next three chapters. This is what Paul is going to tackle for the next three chapters. What's going on with Israel? Has God's promises to Israel failed? And the question is what, church? I'm sorry, the answer is what, church? No. Is it not as though the word of God has failed... Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So here's where we get into the weeds. Paul is arguing that historically, as we look at the nation of Israel, as we read the Old Testament, as we look at the histories, there is a certain specific person or group of people that are all collected and gathered together by DNA, by ethnicity. But Paul is arguing here not all of them are true Israel that there are physical, ethnic Israel, but then there's something else called spiritual Israel. Not everyone is going to get into heaven. Not all of Israel will get into heaven. Put it this way. Only those who are the true Israel. Only those who are the spiritual Israel. It is not as though the Word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither... Is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants? So this is where Paul's doing some serious rhetorical argumentation. Israel, what's Israel's other name? Jacob. Okay, so he's going to come back to Jacob, but he's going to go even further back before he gets to Jacob again. And he starts with Abraham. And the question is, Abraham's kids... Were all of Abraham's kids Israel? Did they become part of the promise? No. He says, Neither is it a case that all of Abraham's children are descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Abraham had, we know of, how many kids? Two. Isaac and who else? Ishmael. Ishmael was not the child of promise. You can read this throughout Galatians, Paul's argument there. All right, Ishmael he had with Hagar. All right, that was the bondservant. But then, you know, he kind of took matters in his own hands, his will, his efforts, trying to accomplish God's promise. And out popped a baby named Ishmael. However, Ishmael was not the child of promise. Who was the child of promise? Isaac. So Abraham had to wait longer. Abraham had a faith more. And he continued having relationships with his real wife. And later, she popped out the real child of promise, which was Isaac. So not all of Abraham's children are the promised children. You guys tracking with the argument? That is, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but the children of promise are considered to be the offspring. So this is one of the principalizing truths. Just because you got the DNA doesn't get you into heaven. What matters is the promise that are given. 
the promise that is given. So, we continue on, verse 9, for this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. So what was the promise? It came out of God's own mouth. He gave the promise. No one else. The promise was dependent upon God creator. He made the promise and guess what? It happened. Everyone we agree? He made the promise. He made the promise happen. Now along the way, check it. Man kind of tried to make that promise happen himself, but it didn't amount to anything. Man's efforts getting in the way of that promise didn't change anything. But God accomplishes all that He sets out to do. Next. And not only that. Verse 10, He gives another example. And not only that, but Rebecca conceived children through one man, our father Isaac, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger as it is written, I have, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. That's a mouthful, ain't it? He moves on to a second example, specifically talking about who? Rebecca and her children. So let's go back to school, Sunday school. Who were Rebecca's children? Esau and Jacob. Sandy, why did you say Esau first? Because he was the firstborn. Good. That's one of our Sunday school teachers right there for our kids. You can be assured our kids are getting it correct, okay? Esau was born first, then Jacob. But what happens? In that day and culture, the firstborn was everything. The firstborn got everything. The firstborn had all the responsibility. And you would assume that the promise is on him. But instead, what? Hebrews talks about Esau quite a bit. And he forsakes his birthright. And he appears... you know, and, he, and there's a cause there that's detrimental to him and the rest of the nation. So here, Esau, although he came out first, does not end up being the promised child. Instead, the second born, second born, whose name is Jacob, ends up receiving the promise. So that. We always want to dial into so that. It's cause and effect. It's result-oriented. It shows how God works. And here Paul says God's purpose, whose purpose, folks? Ours? God's purpose, according to election, might stand. Now here's the scary word. Here's the word that divides churches. But it's there. I didn't come up with the word. You guys all, you guys all agree. I, I did not come up with this word, right? It's right there. God wrote it. What does it mean? Well, next year, we're headed into a new, another election cycle, right? It's going to ramp up. It's going to get crazy. People are going to be like fighting, right? Can't wait. Can you? But what, what are we all moving towards? We're moving towards a date where everyone goes to the box, 
the ballot box and elects a president, right? What's another word for that? We all choose another president. So election is a fancy word. It's in the Greek. It comes from the Bible. But it speaks to God's choice. That according to election, the issue of election, that election might stand. And then he gives some explanation of what election is and what it's not. Not from works, but from the one who calls. So, election, choosing, not from your works. God is going to choose, but he's not going to choose based on your works. Everyone tracking? God's elective purposes are not dependent upon your goodness or your badness. What kind of works, Scott? Well, he's going to get into the weeds a little bit further. I'll give you a hand. I'll show I'll tell you. He's going to talk about your efforts physically, but he's also going to talk about your thinking. That's coming next. Not from our works, but the one who calls. And we dealt with this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. What is calling? What is that? It's an effectual calling. When God speaks, things happen. When God calls, there's an expectation. When God makes a promise, it comes true. Not from works, but from the one who calls. Matthew twenty-two fourteen says, For many are invited. That's the word called. Kaleo. Many are called, but... There are few who are chosen. The call goes out to everyone, but few are chosen. And by the way, this isn't talking about the fishermen. This is talking about more expansive than that. Revelation seventeen fourteen. At the very end of days, after the judgment, yeah, at the judgment, these will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. Because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. Amen. And then we have this. Those with him. Those who are not judged. Those who are not going to hell. Those with him are called. Chosen. Faithful. And I think there's an order there of sorts. Faithfulness is listed last. If you've been called, if you've been chosen, you will be faithful. If you've been called, you've been chosen, you will be filled with faith. She was told, so let's go back and skip this part. Let's reread it in context. Verse 11, For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, she was told what the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, the thing is, um, you know, being a preacher is tough in more ways than one, okay? I've been doing this for almost 17 years, right? And after 17 years, I, I, I read more of the Bible, I study more of the Bible, and things crystallize a little bit more, right? So if you recall, a year and a half ago, we were going through the life of Jacob. Do you remember that? It was a good time. I, I love that story. And we come across this verse, Right? And, and the question is, I have loved Jacob, but I've hate, hated Esau. And so what, what does that mean? Um, I think I've, 
there's some greater clarity here. We might not know fully what it means, but at the end of the day, here's what it means. Um, Jacob was accepted. Esau was rejected. You know, he loved him more, he loved him more, but what was the cause? What's the effect? At the end of the story, Jacob is accepted. Esau is rejected. And it's not their choice in the matter. Yeah, remember the story? Whose choice is it, church? God's. Now, further homework for y'all. This is quoted also from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. So you can do this for homework later. But this is a direct quote specifically from Malachi chapter 1. And in that context, he goes on to talk about how Esau is judged, that Esau will be judged for a long time. Uh, And it's not just Esau, it's the nation, but it's represented in the person. All right, so heaviness has filled the room. What do we do with that? Verse 14, what should we say then? So at this point, what should we say? What do we do with all this? The question that's hovering out in the reader's mind, the question that's probably hovering in all all your minds, is there injustice with God then? Doesn't that sound unjust? It doesn't sound fair. Right? Because what's been big in America for a while now? Equality. Fair play. Is there injustice with God? Paul's answer is no. Absolutely no. We come to this passage, we come to this truth with our Americana attached to it. We come to this truth with our Westernism attached to it, our sense of fair play and what should and what ought to be. I'm going to encourage you to come to this text as God sees it. I'm going to encourage you to come to this text as the Bible shapes and forms it. Here's the further truth, you know. Um, this is very similar to me, like the question that's often posed, how come bad things happen to good people? All right, we've all heard that. And that's not the right question. The right question is, should be, the right question should be, how come bad things happen to bad people? So we, we come to suffering in our Americana frame of mind, our Western thinking, and we presume, we assume that we're all good people, right? But the real question, the better question is, why do bad things happen to bad people? In a similar vein, we come to this truth and we ask, well, why should these types of bad things happen to good people? And the truth is, none of us are good. The truth, if we go back further, so we're here, we're in 2023, Americana, cultural, social, you know, 
civilized thinking, Renaissance men and women, byproducts of all that. But if we go further back, further back, further back to the history, the origins of everything, what do we remember? God created creation good. So there was a time where everything was good. Do you remember that story? But then in chapter 3, what happened? Everything turned what? Everything turned bad. Not just creation uh, in, in the form of my front yard having weeds in it. You know, having health issues. But, but the corruption of man, the taint of sin in every human being, God created it good. Man destroyed it. And here's the last part that's pertinent to our discussion today. Sequentially, God should have. God had every right. When we talk about justice, God would have been completely just in destroying Adam and Eve. We all tracking? That was his prerogative as a holy, righteous creator. He told them, don't do it, or you will what? Die. It's emphasized in the Hebrew. They disobeyed. They should have been blasted off the surface of the earth. Are we all tracking? But what happened? Instead, in his mercy, humanity continues. So what is fair? What is just? We often come to God's word based on our context instead of his. Based on our present context instead of all of creation's context. Secondly, God didn't just decide not to blast everyone to high heaven, but he also chose in his mercy and his compassion to send Jesus. Did he have to do that, folks? I want a stronger yes or no. Did he have to send the son? Was he obligated by justice in any sense of the word to send Jesus? He wasn't obligated. So he could have blown us off the face of the earth and he could have chosen never to send Jesus, but he did. So here's now we go back to election. If God chooses some and not all, have that argument with him. But it's it's right here. I, I don't like it. Never said I like this, but it's right here. We should say, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Here's his reasoning. For he gives us two examples here. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So he's going to give two more examples here. This comes out of Exodus 33 or something. We read it at the beginning of the service. Uh, Kyle read it for us. Can you throw that up there by chance, Eric? I know you have the... There you go. Look how fast he is. What's interesting about this, he says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. 
before you. Many scholars argue that what comes after that is actually God's full name. That what does the Lord mean? What does Yahweh mean? Well, it means this. That God's basic character outlined in His actual name, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Please try to understand me. Teacher's not connecting the dots. I don't feel it by your reaction. All right? What is His name? Yahweh. But what does Yahweh mean? It means that. That's who Yahweh is. In His basic nature, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord, guys? He is the God who chooses to be gracious to whom He will be gracious, and He is the God who chooses to have compassion on whom He will have compassion. At the kernel, at the core of who God is, that's His nature. So then, verse 16, so then is important, circle it, it shows purpose. It's actually two words in the Greek. It's basically, as a result of, therefore. Two different words, as a result of, therefore. Because of all of this, guess what? There's a cause. There's an effect. And he's emphasizing it twice. It does not depend. What then does? What's it? What's the antecedent? It is what? God's mercy, God's compassion. What is it? God's promise. What is it? God's choosing. What is it? I think there's a 90s song with that refrain. What is it? It's God's salvation. It does not depend on human at will or human effort, but on God who shows mercy. It does not depend on, here's the literal translation, the one, it's singular, the one who wants slash wishes slash desires. That word will is thelmos in the Greek. Some of you know it. It speaks to desire. It doesn't depend upon your, it doesn't depend on, let's make it very personal because it is in the Greek, one singular person. It doesn't matter about your will or his will out there. I'm going to offend some people, but the word free will is not here. It's not in the Bible. It does not depend upon will. God's predestination does not exclude man's responsibility. Okay, there's still a responsibility to choose God. Here's the problem. Again, we go all the way back. Not our Western thinking, not our American thinking, but we go further back to what Bible says. Because of sin, you and I, apart from Christ, because of sin, will always choose ourselves. That the world out there, non-believers, non-saved, non-regenerate, non-Holy Spirit-filled, has free will but that free will is completely tainted by sin, so much so that they will never ever turn to the Lord on their own. 
The depravity man teaches that we are so depraved we will always and forever choose ourselves over him. Unless he in his compassion and mercy steps in. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Dawn, ironically, coincidentally, providentially, preached on this last week. This is before the flood. Okay? So, again, going back to the origin story, perfect, good, bad. And it just gets worse and worse. So here's what God does. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Now, we can take that figuratively or we can take it literally. But I don't know about you. Even as a Christian filled by the Holy Spirit, my mind is evil. I'm your pastor. I would be ashamed for you to be able to read my mind at times. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Lord saw that the human weakness, humanity, the world, was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and He was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind from... from I'm sorry, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl on the birds of the sky for I regret that I made them. God chooses to follow through on His power, sovereign authority to wipe everyone out and to justly destroy His creation as He promised. Remember that? And so He sets about to do that. Proving his justice. If God said, I'm going to destroy you, you're going to die, die. But then he doesn't follow through with that. Is he a just God? Is he righteous? Is he truthful? He destroys everyone except Noah. This is the most important phrase in the entire Noah narrative. Noah, however found favor with the Lord. We tend to think, Sandy, you got to make sure the kids get this right, but we tend to think that Noah was somehow better than everyone else. We tend to think that God chose Noah because he was just more righteous. But the key to understanding the narrative is this word favor, which is grace. God chose Noah not because he deserved it, not because he had earned it. He just chose Noah, his prerogative. And guess what? Besides Noah and his kids, everybody perished. It later says he was righteous. Do you remember that from last week? Noah was righteous. But in between God's grace 
And in between Noah's righteousness, let's fill in the blank, Noah in faith built the ark. So we are saved by faith. We're going to have to tie that together in this as well. But grace, Noah demonstrated his faith by spending years being mocked and yet building an ark in the middle of the desert. He was faithful, full of faith. You guys all tracking? And Paul says faith is the means through which we are declared righteous. You all tracking? But it all was dependent upon God's grace at the beginning. His choosing. The interesting thing is what we read at the beginning of the Noah's flood narrative, we see the same exact thing after it's all said and done. Genesis 8.21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma after they land on dry ground, after almost two years of floating in the ocean, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. I will never again strike down every living thing as I've done. You keep reading with water. Okay. In Peter, he talks about he's going to do it again with fire. But here's the point. Before and after, nothing's changed. God destroys everything as like a warning. But guess what? The warning's not enough. First Peter talking about the impending judgment with fire. That's not enough. The sinful, wicked inclinations of man's heart are still an issue. God's destruction on earth didn't change that. It's still a problem. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? What changes it? What fixes it? What fixes it? What redeems the heart? Jesus Christ and His elective purposes for His church. What changes the heart is the Holy Spirit coming upon whom He wants to and regenerating that person. Conversion. Regeneration. Revelation 7.14, 17.14, again, these will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Those who are called, those who are chosen and faithful, all of it comes together. God does this, God does this, and God supplies the faith as well. So I know some of you are waiting for the question, what about faith? What about our response? It's there. We're going to get to it in chapter 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that there's that word faith, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, you will be what? There's still a responsibility for man to change. I'm sorry, to respond. But it begins in God's elective purposes and then we respond to God's elective purposes. Faith is a gift. You may have been taught differently. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. How? By faith. What does he say next? This is not of your own doing, but it's a what? So the other component that's missing in this argument, it comes in in verse 10, chapter 10, is that issue of faith. But the Lord chooses, and then what does he do? He gives faith. 
the Lord regenerates the heart. That means He pumps it full of life. We were dead before, Ephesians chapter 1. And in that justification, I'm sorry, in that regeneration, we now for the first time have free will to choose the Lord. Before then, we had free will to follow our evil, wicked desires. When the Holy Spirit comes and chooses and calls, it's effective. And the Holy Spirit comes upon that person and births them with new life. That's what it means to be reborn again. John 3. And He also provides the faith to say yes. Guys, when God wants you, He's going to get you. If God wants you, He's going to get you. You can't resist Him. If He chooses to come to you and to save you, He's going to get what He wants. And so that means He changes everything and He gives us the faith to respond. Augustine said, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. He chooses and He gives the power, the ability to say yes as well. The last, the second thing here, that was a long one. It does not depend upon human will. That's our intellect. That's our heart. And it doesn't depend upon our effort. So this one's very similar to the will. It's a participle verb, just like human will was but it literally translates the one who runs slash rushes slash slash advances. So it's nothing that we think. And guess what? It's nothing that we do. It's the literal translation, if you got the New American Standard, uses runs. So it's not works. It's God's grace. It's His elective purposes. It's His promise to some. It's His power to redeem. And it's all based, this last part, on His mercy. Nothing else. It's His mercy because what's the opposite of mercy, folks? Condemnation, wrath, anger, judgment. But this is Yahweh. The One who will show compassion and mercy on whom He chooses. Last thing here, for the Scripture, there's two more things. For the Scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So the second example he gives goes back to Pharaoh, Egypt, the ten plagues. And if you read that, you remember that, right? There are times where Pharaoh hardens his heart. There are times God hardens his heart. Remember that? And you've heard preachers point that out, right? And try to explain it. Well, very first thing talks about Pharaoh's heart and how he's not going to um, change his mind on this. Like God has already predetermined it. And here, Paul says he raised them up for that very purpose. That's where we're going to go next Sunday. If you, if I haven't offended you thoroughly and you want to come back next week, he's going to unpack that part, okay, of raising up for his glory. Alright, the last thing here, so then, again, it's the same thing as verse 16. As a result, therefore, it's a double, emphatic, causal, purposeful statement here. Because of everything he's argued, here's his final thrust. 
He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, underline wants and underline wants. It's the same exact Greek word as in verse 16, wills. We do not come to Christ because we will, and He chooses because He wills. Twice. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh, His choice, His elective purpose is not ours. Why is that important? Scott, we're not done yet, sorry. Trying to sum this up. Why is this important? It's important because it's God's Word. Most most churches will never touch this with a 10-foot pole. It's too divisive, right? But what's the point? What, 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 what should we take away with this? I want to back up. What is this really about? What's the so what? i got two questions here. First, what's the overall problem? How can we summarize this, unpack this? Why is this important to us? We need to understand that the basic problem that we deal with every single day is that sin causes you and I to pursue our own glory. That's the fundamental issue that Paul is getting at. This is the fundamental issue for the doctrine of election. For us to understand the doctrine of election, why is that important? We need to first understand that God elects because we pursue our own glory instead which robs God of His. God created humanity not for companionship. God was perfectly content living among Himself with the three entities. He did not lack in any need for community. He created man for His glory. Can we all agree on that? There was a reason that man was created, that man would glorify the Lord. You and I, though, are glory robbers, And we're constantly daily looking for other things to attach glory to instead of Creator. What's the solution? The only solution, folks, is God's merciful election. That's it. You don't have the solution within your... Let's put it this way. If you are a child of God, you had nothing within yourself to save yourself. The world out there, non-believers, they have nothing within themselves to save themselves. 99% of them are going to stiff arm all of this truth or God Himself, Jesus Christ's resurrection, say, I really don't need it. They're going to walk away. It takes a miracle for someone to hear about the cross and the resurrection and say, yes, I believe that, I want that. It takes a miracle. Remember the disciples who say, they ask, if that's the case, who can be saved? And what was Jesus' response? With man, it's impossible. His literal words, it's impossible. Salvation is a miracle, folks. Not brought by us, but by the Lord through His merciful election, His choosing. Where does that lead? A central truth. So what? Okay, The doctrine of election should do two things. One, cause us, then for, cause us to worship in greater joy. If this is true, what should be its effect? You and I should now approach God way more humbly, way more in awe, way in way more joy, knowing that we didn't deserve it, period. Because I think, I know my tendency is to kind of creep over here and start thinking I deserve it. 
or to creep over here and think somehow I deserved it. I was smarter than the next person. Guys, I have lots of accomplishments and I can rattle those off in my pride. But none of those got me to here. The Lord saved me. Not by will, not by running. Second thing, it should instill within each of us a greater desire for evangelism. And you guys are looking at me like, what? Well, everyone's saved. That's the argument. You can't believe this stuff and still be evangelistic. But I beg to differ. You look back at the history of the church and guys who believed this promoted it, they were all evangelists. I came kicking and screaming to this doctrine because that was my biggest issue. There was a part of me that said, I can't believe this and still like be concerned about the lost world. I, I don't know if I can believe this and still have a, a desire to evangelize. But the Lord showed me this guy who does it, this guy who does it, that guy who's had a successful ministry doing it, and that's a lame excuse. Because here's the truth. If you're on the other side of the fence and you don't like this, I'm just going to ask this question. I've been asking this question. How many of us have actually shared the gospel with someone in the last month since January? Once? Cool. But twice? Three? Four? Every week? The argument goes, well, you can't believe this and be an event. That's bull. I, I argue the majority of the church ain't sharing the gospel right now, and they don't believe this. But what do I need to do? I need to go and do it out of obedience. If you're on one side of the fence or other side of the fence, Arminian, Calvinism, those are the big scary words, it still comes down to obedience. And here's the thing about Calvinism, though. That's the dirty word. Here's the thing about God's sovereignty. Here's the thing about God's choosing. Here's the thing about God's election. Joe's salvation is not dependent upon me. Here's the wonderful truth about being a pastor that has to wear the weight of everyone's life on his shoulder. I don't have to. Because I could screw it up today, and if Joe, if God wants Joe to be saved, God's going to make sure Joe gets saved. And it's the same for you when you're hesitant, when you're afraid, when you're scared to share the gospel with something, somebody. Guess what? That person, if God wants them, He's going to get them. And you now have the choice with this knowledge to either be obedient or disobedient. You now have, with this knowledge, the choice, your own choice, to enjoy the celebration and being part of God's movement in another person's life, or you can sit on the bench and allow that joy to be experienced by another brother or Christian who's more faithful. The doctrine of election gives us boldness it gives us confidence that we can do what He's called us to do without fear, without anxiety, because the Lord has promised and the Lord will fulfill those promises. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask for Your grace right now.
as you have meddled, as you have stirred up not only our thoughts, but our hearts with your word. Lord, as we get apprehensive about guests being in the room and what they're hearing or thinking, whether this will cause us to be less passionate in ways. Lord, I want to I end by just coming to You and asking for Your grace that we would understand this better. Lord, Your grace to humble our hearts to receive it, to make sense of it, but to not oppose it. And Lord, I ask for your grace to help us see the joy inherent in it that you have saved us. That you didn't have to, but for some reason in your mercy, your grace, your compassion, you chose us. So Lord, let that truth humble us this morning. Lord, let that truth stir our hearts for greater pursuit of your glory lord lord that we would see in a new frame just what salvation is and isn't and that you are the author of all of it and that you deserve 100% of the glory not just 99% of it but lord we are saved because of you Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted in every heart here, every mind here. Holy Spirit, if someone has never responded to you in faith, Holy Spirit, I ask in your great compassion, you would smack into that person and press down upon their heart and constrain their mind to see your truth, that you would illuminate their mind to see your truth, to see your beauty, your glory. Lord, the incredible sacrifice that you made to save men and women to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would save them even right now that you would give them the faith to turn to you and turn away from the things of this world, but to turn to you. And Lord, for this church, I pray that we would stop being afraid of stupid things like budget or empty seats or people being upset about this or that. But Lord, that we would lift our chins up and see your glory see your power to save, to see that this is about you and what you want and the plans and purpose you've already put into motion, that we would just trust you and get on the bus, that we would just be obedient, that we would wait, that we'd seek you. Lord, we want to see you move mightily. We want to see more and more people come to know you. We want to see more people baptized, all those things. Help us to trust it's your work, though. Help us not get in front of your work. Help us to wait until you move so that all the glory would be for you. That we would never point to ourselves. But Lord, that you would do something within us and through us where all the glory would be pointed to you. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Everybody said...